Mud Stories, Episode 46. Your mercy floods my tired soul as you lift me out of my muddy hole. You wash me up with your sweet grace and you lead me to a safer place again. There's a courage in being a person who's willing to be sorrowful, in being a person who's willing to know that joy and sorrow can coexist underneath the umbrella of grace. I think one of the greatest lessons I've learned is lamenting and sorrowing are not a sign that we aren't living in faith or that we've lost hope. Those things can happily coexist inside us. And it's been easier for me to return and rebuild and find healing in my relationship with God when I became willing to accept a long process of grief, the living in the long lament, rather than trying to stuff it all away and live under some expectation that I should be beyond that now and and good with things. Hi, my name is Jackie Watkins, your host, and you're listening to Mud Stories a podcast dedicated to bringing you inspiration in your muddiest moments, hope to make it through your mud, and encouragement for you to know that you are not alone. Hey friends, I'm so very glad you've joined me here today. And if this is your first time here at Mud Stories, I want to extend a huge welcome to you. I'm so very glad you're here. Today I have part one of a two-part conversation with my friend Colleen Mitchell. Now Colleen and I did meet through Facebook. We have several mutual Facebook friends. And if you heard my conversations with Elizabeth Foss in episodes 33 and 34, you may remember us talking about Colleen and her story. Now I want to introduce you to Colleen because she's awesome and amazing. She's a wife to Greg and the mother of five sons here on earth, ranging in age from eight to 16, as well as five precious little ones in heaven. Colleen and her family reside in Central America in the country of Costa Rica, where she works out what it means to love Jesus and to live the gospel as an adventure. And Colleen has a lot of adventures, I will say. Not only adventures there in Costa Rica, but as a writer on her blog entitled Blessed Are the Feet. Now, I was blessed to meet Colleen in person last year at the Alum Conference, and I got the privilege of sitting down with her and hearing her story and talking with her heart to heart, and I just fell in love even more with who she is, and I'm so thrilled she agreed to come and share her story with all of us here at Mud Stories. So, I think it's so important to recognize that we've all had loss in our lives, really no matter who we are. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be the loss of a loved one through death. It could be the loss of a dream or the loss of something you had anticipated happening. But whatever it is, loss often marks us and causes grief that oftentimes is ongoing and never seems to end. And I'm so thankful that Colleen has gleaned for us through her loss and ongoing grief, some wisdom and experience that she's willing to come and share with us so that we can learn what it means to not only survive, but live fully with hope, even in ongoing grief. And so it's my prayer today that if you've faced loss in your life at any level, no matter what it is, or maybe you know someone who really is struggling with loss even now, or some acute grief, or even ongoing grief, it's my hope that this conversation with Colleen will inspire and encourage you no matter where you are. Enjoy. Hey, Colleen, I've been looking forward to having you join me here for so long. Welcome to the Mud Stories podcast. Thanks, Jackie. I'm so glad to talk to you. And I think everybody should know how we met. Do you remember how we met? I do remember. Because <laughs> I was the Last awkward year girl. At a loom in October. <laughs> right? I know. I'm sorry. I'm 
It's okay. I was that awkward girl that was uh, at the buffet and I was getting food because I love food. And I saw your name tag. And I, I think it's that we had a mutual Facebook friend. I'd seen your name on Facebook. And I almost didn't say anything because it's so awkward. I mean, how do you just, hi, are you so-and-so? I mean, I was, I was hesitant, but then I just decided I'm just going to ask her. And I said, are you Colleen Mitchell? And then you're like, well, actually I am. (laughs) I think you might've thought I was weird at first. (laughs) I didn't think you were weird, but, (laughs) but it was, it is awkward to just be in a place where you have seen all these people that you recognize from online, right? but I've never met in person. And to just, it's hard. Like your connections from online are so, um, distant, right. To try to make that person understand how you know who they are feels a little weird, but I'm so glad that you did. And we had a really good chance to get to know one another and visit at, um, at a loom last year. And it was one of the highlights for me. Oh, and for me as well. I'm so glad I did push through that awkward moment. And for any of you out there who are going to have an awkward moment that you wish you would have said something to somebody, just go ahead and do it because it, it was so fun. Colleen and I got to sit down for any of you who don't know, a loom is a blogging conference where, you know, people who have a blog and have interacted online, it's a conference where you can go and meet each other in person. And then they have, you know, different classes and workshops and speakers. And you just, it's kind of like a women's retreat, don't you think? Like it is to hang it's out much, together in person. Yes. Yeah. It's much more retreat feeling, I think, because there is time built in to just connect and hang out. And that's one of my favorite things about it. Yeah. And it, you know, when you've interacted with someone online and then you get to meet them in person, it really is a highlight. It's really great. So for us, we got to, you know, catch a little spot in the lounge, just in a quiet little corner. And it was just the loveliest conversation that I had with you. And we discovered that we share this passion for moms and their babies and birth and breastfeeding. And it was such a privilege to learn about your story and all that God is doing through you. Just amazing. I loved, loved getting to meet you, Colleen. Thank you. Me too, Jackie. Well, I know that you now live in Costa Rica. Our people listening might not know that, which is super amazing. Uh, with your husband and your five boys. Yes, all boys? Yes, all boys. All boys. And how you ended up there is quite a story. But why don't you take a minute and tell us about the ages of your boys and about your husband. And let's start there. Get to know you a little bit. Okay. All right. Well, Greg and I will have been married 18 years this July. And we are the parents of five sons. Our oldest son, Quinn, is 16. And we have Gabriel, who's 14. Brendan is 11. Evan is 9. And Colby is 8. Well, I have two boys who are 9 and 11 as well. And I know there is never a dull moment around here. I can't imagine with five of them interacting. Just so much boyness in one place. (laughs) It is a lot of testosterone. Yes. You're outnumbered. I hope they treat you like a queen. They do. And they're really, really good at that. I just took them all last week to get a haircut. And they had to wait for me at the end to get my haircut. And they were so cute because they just all spent the whole time telling me how beautiful I was and how amazing I looked. I'm never going to get a haircut without them again. Oh, I love that. That is so sweet. Oh, well, I know one of the things that I've heard you say is that God can use incredible loss to birth something beautiful in each of us if we give him permission. And I think that is exactly what he's done with you in the aftermath of a lot of deep loss and grief in your life, just a lot of messy mud that you've walked through. I think not only walked through, but literally just survived when there were days I'm sure you wondered, you know, if you could even make it through such deep and dark and sticky mud. So I'd love it if you would just, you know, I had the privilege of hearing your story in person and I asked you to come be here to share this mud story because I think there are so many listening who can benefit from the wisdom and experience through which you've walked. And so I'd love it if you'd just take take us back and share with us a bit about your background and 
Um, everything that set up the beginning of your mud, um, how your mud began, first with maybe some small mud puddles and then straight into the deepest, darkest mud and how that led to where you are now. Sure. Greg and I, from the earliest days of our courtship and our marriage, were just um, so sure that we wanted to reject a very normal suburban life and do something really radical and different. And then we got married and we had a baby 11 months later and life just happened and all of these expectations that go along with it. And about five years into our marriage, we had had two children and we're pregnant for our third child. And we sort of looked at one another one day and kind of had a moment of like, how did we get here? Why are we in this house in the suburbs working jobs and doing all the normal things that we said we weren't going to do, <laughs> that we wanted to do something really radical for for Christ and for the gospel and live this very radical life. And we were living this very average existence. And in that moment, we started to look for what God might have us do different. And eventually we found our path into entering training to become foreign missionaries. And we spent three years serving in the foreign mission field then. And as our family grew and we were expecting our fourth child, we were ready to just head back to what was home for us, Louisiana, and take a, a break and a rest period and see what God might do with us then. And then we had our fifth child shortly after our fourth child. They're only 14 months apart. So mm. again, life just demanded that we kind of keep up the pace and, and go on. And we were still serving our church, building community, homeschooling our kids and engaging with other families and faith formation of our own children and working in our church and our community as much as we could. But again, had sort of fallen back into the path of living an average life besides the fact that we had five sons. Um, yeah. But, and you know, <laughs> it sounded like life was really full. I mean, life was busy. It was and a full life. Full. And it, took, it demanded everything of us. And of course, those days of having lots of little ones back to back and trying to figure out how to keep a marriage healthy and stay in community and stay feeding yourselves are its own kind of, of mud, you know, just because it's not yes. extremely extraordinary doesn't mean it's not difficult. Yes. Um, and so we were sort of just living through that. And then in 2009, our sixth son Bryce was born and very much we, he was wanted and hoped for and loved. And we were excited to embrace this identity of, the family with all the boys, and he just fell right into pace with all of the other activities of our big boy family, headed out to the football field three times a week and uh, in my arms while his brothers practiced. And we were just sort of going on through what life demanded of us as parents of this large family and members of our community and in service to our church. And then... One day, our lives were stopped on a dime when Bryce, at three months old on September 1st of 2009, died in his sleep during his nap time. Hmm. And for us, obviously, that was the most dramatic loss that we've ever experienced. But the drastic grief that that plunged us into ushered in a period of our lives where we went through a lot of loss and stripping away um, in the months that followed Bryce's death, we uh, experienced a subsequent miscarriage in the second trimester of a pregnancy. My husband lost his job, and life just sort of was thrown into, into a, a complete blackout of darkness for us, where really all we could see around us was the pain and the loss and the stripping away <sighs> that we were going through. Colleen, I... I want to go back to that day. I know it, it can't be easy to talk about, but I think there might be people out there who've experienced the loss of a child or know someone who's experienced the loss of a child. I mean, September 1st of 2009, you put Bryce down for a nap, three months old, and you just went back to check on him and he had passed away. I mean, is that what happened? Yes. Yes. Was, was Greg we were home? We homeschooling family. We were all at home. 
Greg was not home. Greg <sighs> was out working. He actually was working for our church at the time and was at a, a staff luncheon with our pastor and everyone from church. And I was home with the other, all the boys homeschooling and doing our thing. Grateful that this little three month old had finally eased into a schedule where he took a morning nap and we could actually get some schoolwork done. Yeah. And so when he fell asleep, you know, I hurried to put him down and take advantage of the few hours maybe that I was going to have to get some, some work done. And, and then just an hour and a half later or so, um, when we went to check on him, he was not breathing in his sleep. Oh, Colleen, I'm so sorry, friend. Thanks. Oh, there, there are no words for that other than I'm sorry. No words. No, there's, there's no, there's nothing I can say to make it sound any prettier than it, than it is. Yeah. You know, it, it, it was a truly dark, devastating moment that, that redefined our lives. Mm-hmm. And then following that, there was more loss. Yes. So we've actually experienced in the last five years, four subsequent miscarriages, um, the first one came in very close proximity after Bryce's death, and it was a uh, not a very early miscarriage. We actually were on the way to our our ultrasound where we thought we'd be finding out the sex of this baby, and um, so like around twenty weeks, you know, so? celebrating around seventeen, eighteen weeks, yeah. yeah. Mm. And um, and the baby did not have a heartbeat when we went for our ultrasound. Mm. That wasn't very long after Bryce's death. No, it was just about um, seven months later. Oh, Colleen. In moments like that, like, what is your response to God? I mean, I'm thinking, I mean, I have not experienced loss like that, but I'm imagining I would be pretty upset with God. I mean, what was your response to that? Yeah, it's a strange dichotomy of a response, I think. We had been walking a life of faith for a long time before that. And so before our losses and before we were really, you know, in this very hard place. And so there was a a part of me that clung desperately to God and knew it was the only thing that was keeping me breathing every day was knowing that God was there, that God was in this. And then there was another part of me that just felt so abandoned Mm -hmm. and almost like it was unfair for him to expect me to cling to him and believe that he was good when he, from my perspective in the moment was doing such horrible things to me. Yeah. I can see. I can see how you would feel that way. I think everybody can understand that. Because in times when we have things that are hard like this, I mean, not not just hard, but devastating, um, it really is a challenge to believe that God is good, that what he gives is the best gift for us, even when it feels like it's punitive, you know. Yes. Punitive at best and him just disengaged and aloof at worst, you know. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I imagine that wasn't easy on the marriage either. I mean, such grief and loss, men and women grieve in different ways. Can you speak to that a little bit? Because I know if people have had loss, maybe that has been one of the major pieces of the struggle. Sure. It was stressful I think in relationally across the board, it, it was stressful because you are very suddenly a completely different person and you have to take the time to get to know who that new person is mm-hmm. and to learn to accept that person and love this new you who's been undeniably changed in a way you never expected to be. We can't predict how grief is going to affect us. We can't predict how the interaction of grief and our own temperament and our own circumstances is going to play itself out. You know, I um, 
often joke that I wish that those stages of grief had never been written or published because <laughs> yes, the Elizabeth um, Kubler Ross stages of grief. Yes. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I feel like there's this whole expectation of like everyone's sort of looking at you like, Oh, well she's in shock right now. And tomorrow she's going to be in denial. And then, you know, and eventually she'll get past all this, you know, we'll get to the last stage. We'll get to acceptance and, then we can all just go back to life the way it was. And that has not at all been my experience of grief. We'll talk a little bit about that, how you how you have come to believe that it's okay to continue this ongoing grief in a way and what that looks like and how you've personally learned to manage that. And as a family, because it had to have affected the boys too, as well as your marriage. And, you know, even today, 2009 was six years ago still ongoing grief, right? Yes. It's taken a long time to get to a place where I can um, feel free to articulate to people some of the things we're talking about here in that I don't think grief is something we, we walk through and we, and we come to a a nice, neat, wrapped up ending of, Mm -hmm. um, that was very hard for me to accept at first or to allow myself to express at first because I am a people pleaser by nature. <laughs> and I know it would be so much easier for everyone else if I could just put it all behind me. Yeah. Get over it. And get over it. Move on. If I didn't always feel the need to talk about and articulate grief and, um, and the ongoing process of grief, But my heart has become to express that, to be very real and authentic about what my experience of grief has been, to articulate it in spoken and written ways for other people, to be able to come to a deeper understanding of the way we experience grief and the way that we can. I think one of the greatest lessons I've learned is that lamenting and sorrowing are not a sign that we aren't living in faith or that we've lost hope. Those things can happily coexist inside us. And it's been easier for me to return and rebuild and find healing in my relationship with God when I became willing to accept a long process of grief, the living in the long lament, rather than trying to stuff it all away and and live under some expectation that I should be beyond that now and and good with things. I can see how that would be very freeing in a sense of releasing that expectation and changing it, changing the paradigm of it. Because if you stop expecting yourself to be done with it eventually, because if you stay there, you're going to always feel like a failure because the grief and the loss will always be there. Even though you can talk about it without sobbing, with me today. It's still there. And so if you expect yourself to come to eventually a place where it won't be there, you're always going to feel like you're failing. Whereas what you're saying is, if I change that paradigm and say, okay, this is a long relational lament with God, lament in the sense of I'm leaning on God through the grief Right? Isn't that what lamenting is when the scripture talks about lamenting? Right. T- talk to me about this new paradigm because I think it's gonna it would be key for a lot of people who have been putting that expectation on themselves and feeling maybe even guilt and shame for still feeling sad. I think for me, I don't know what what the key was, the turning point where I said, you know what? This is my process and I don't have to do it the way any psychology textbook tells me to, or anyone around me expects me to. But I know that it was, it was a long working out of prayer and of pastoral counsel and of conversation with my husband, where I did have the support of enough people who love me unconditionally that I felt free to finally get to a place where I could just accept that there's a courage in being a person who's willing to be sorrowful in a person in being a person who's willing to know that joy and sorrow can coexist underneath the umbrella of grace 
that grace is wide and big and full and there's space for everything in there. And so to come to a place in my life where I could say, I'm very, very grateful and joyful for the five boys I still have. I'm very grateful and joyful that our marriage weathered this storm. But none of those things mean I don't grieve right. the losses that I experience, that I don't sorrow that on this side of the veil, I'm without something that should be mine. Right. Something God gave. Right. And there's a, a, a piece in accepting that joy and sorrow can coexist in your life, that living one fully doesn't mean you ignore the other, that you can have a full experience of, of both of those aspects of our humanity. And I always sort of go back to the thought that the resurrected Jesus still bore his scars. You know, the joy of the resurrection didn't erase the pain of his passion. Yeah. And for me, that's always a really comforting image that I know that Jesus gets me. He's been there. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We have a savior who not only knows our suffering, experienced suffering far greater. I love that sorrow in your shift of thinking becomes a verb and not a noun. You know, sorrow isn't the thing. Sorrowing is what you're doing. And right. Yeah, that's really good. And we can exist sorrowing and singing a joyful song at the same time. So as you walked through this sorrowing as a verb and the years passed by and more grief came, not only a second trimester loss, but more miscarriages. Yes. Yes. But even more things fell away. Tell me about those. Um. In addition to the, the subsequent miscarriages we experienced after Bryce's death, um, my husband worked in, um, was self-employed in an oil field related job. And for any listeners who don't know, that's an industry that tends to be either feasting or completely famining. And uh, we hit a, a famine point where there just was not work. And so in addition to trying to deal with the stress of, of grief and, and multiple losses. Then we had a period of financial instability, a period of my husband trying to figure out what his next step was personally, of us really entering in a, a phase of not knowing who we were anymore. All of these labels that had sort of defined us in our in our average everyday existence of you know, his professional titles and what he did and my role as a mother and that a mother is a person who, who gives life were suddenly stripped away. It wasn't so much about what to do next as much it was as a question of who are we now? Who are we in our essence? And what does God expect of us now? Well, our grief and loss changes us. We become different. Right. It marks us. And so... It's not unusual that that's what you experienced next, I would say. Right. But then the question is, how do you find your way out of that? And maybe you could share a little bit about the circumstances that ended up developing and unfolding and how you really saw God in it. Surely. Um, one of the great blessings in our, in our life as we went through our, our process of, of grief and loss and and this whole redefining of who we were was that we had very exceptional pastoral care and direction in our lives and people who were very patient with us um, in the midst of us kind of just trying to figure this out. And I'm also very blessed to have a, a, a husband who is prayerful and just so full of the spirit that even in the midst of some of the worst pain it was still his strongest heart and passion and desire to lead us as a family to the other side of this. And one of his earliest visions 
was that we needed to have a way to remember our son Bryce and a way to bring hope and redemption to our story of loss in, in his name. And he just felt so certain that Bryce still had work to do this side of heaven. And so he formed a not-for-profit organization in Bryce's name in 2011 that we just were not really sure what God was going to do with. We It was just our conviction that our knowledge and hope of heaven and Bryce being in heaven was often our only consolation in this process. And our heart was for the people around the world who don't know the hope of salvation and who experience the same kind of profound losses that we experience without that hope to hold on to. And so we just moved slowly into this process of putting Bryce's name on, on a not-for-profit organization that became St. Bryce Missions and letting God lead us to anything he might want us to do any work that Bryce still had to do on this this side of heaven. That's That was really visionary of him. And really with no idea what that would look like. Just a, a hope and a prayer, really, of there's got to be redemption in this somewhere. And so we're going to grab it. You know, we're going to, I think it was a almost a, a tenacity on his part, on my husband Greg's part of saying, I just know that you've got redemption in this God and and I'm not going to wait for you to show it to me. I'm just going to come grab it. Yeah. Push the doors open and see which ones are uh, openings to walk through. Exactly. And so we never in our wildest dreams imagined that that would look the way it does in our lives right now today in the moment that we began this process when we formed the not-for-profit. But over time, as doors closed on the job market and we began to realize we were ready to move on from the house we had been living in, that it just held a lot of history that we we needed to step away from and get some perspective on. And it just gradually became more and more clear that there was a whole wide world of possibility out there and that God's answer to our need for healing and redemption was not necessarily going to be the very conventional answer that we might have been looking for. For me, as a wife and a mother who had been through a lot of upheaval and loss, my greatest desire was to just have a really safe nest to tuck all my chicks in (laughs) (laughs) and and kind of hide away from the big dangerous world, you know? And that's not what God was doing. And it became fairly obvious as... The job market did not return as there was a sense of of letting go of our house and our space and being ready to move on for there. And I just knew that God was up to something bigger than we initially thought he was. But for me, that was a very hard acceptance. I was in a place where I felt like, okay, God, I can have faith in you and I can accept that you're good. But I also sort of think you owe me something. Right. Absolutely. You've taken an awful lot away. Mm-hmm. And I'm not really ready to do anything more for you right now. And that is a gut level honest reaction. I love that you're sharing that because I want anyone out there to know who's felt the same way. It's totally normal and it's okay and God can even handle it. Yeah. And I think it wasn't a conscious decision of trust in God, like, oh, I know God can handle all my railing and, and anger and hard stuff, but that that was just my my guttural, visceral reaction. And God was either going to handle it or not, because <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't anything else I could do. You right. know, my deepest instinct was to think, I'm going to dig my heels in right in this spot, protect my territory, what you've... The, the, the things you've left me with, and I'm going to wait until you show me mm-hmm. that you're still in this with me. Right. However, God often, and I don't know if you've experienced this in your life, but often has a way of bringing about the outcome that we desire by doing exactly the opposite thing that we think he should do. <laughs> 
isn't that true? Yep. Um, so what I really wanted was a reason to to live again, a, something to be passionate about, a reason to believe and trust and hope in his goodness and in his plan for our lives in the midst of all of this loss. I wanted to see it redeemed somehow. You just had a particular way you thought he should do it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I thought that looked like, you know, a nicer, newer house <laughs> in a safer, prettier place. Um, With a stable, new, fantastic job for Greg. Exactly. And that's not what God had in mind at all. So shortly after we founded this not-for-profit in 2011, in his quest of trying to find some a new direction professionally, Greg took a business trip to Costa Rica, a place that he had, he had done various business projects off and on for, and he was gone for about a month. And in that time... In doing some traveling on some time, downtime from the project he was working on, he was introduced to an indigenous tribe who live in a very isolated mountain region of Costa Rica. And it is a indigenous tribe who, during the Spanish colonial times, very much rejected the, the infusion of colonialism and isolated themselves. And so never experienced the Christianization that the rest of Costa Rica did. I see. And now, hundreds of years later, they still live very much the same way in, in reserve lands that are only accessible by foot. And they are still a culture in which the gospel has not fully taken root, where there's a great amount of work to be done on behalf of God. And my husband returned home to me with a, a part of him left in those mountains. Hmm. And I knew shortly after seeing his expression and, and the way he looked when he talked about it, that this was the thing God wanted us to do. But I played ignorant for an awful long time because I did not want that to be the thing <laughs> that, that God wanted us to do. You're like, this is not the plan, Greg. This is not the plan. <laughs> so was he hiking like on a day he wasn't doing business? Or like, how does one just happen upon a mountainous indigenous people? I'm just wondering. He actually went. Is he an adventurous guy or to, what? Um, he is a very adventurous guy. <laughs> so anybody who knows him, this story does not surprise them at all. Okay, but good. He actually went off to a, a church, a very um, well-known national shrine in Costa Rica to pray and was introducing himself to people that he found around church and just talking, I don't know, making friends. Well, did he know? speak Spanish? Yes. And making friends with people as he kind of hung out there that weekend. And he met the pastors who were ministering to this indigenous tribe. Got it. And okay. so he asked if he could follow them home. <laughs> On foot into the mountain. So first he followed them by car to their house, and then he followed them on foot to one of the villages that they were visiting that weekend, and that's how he ended up there. Now, do does that indigenous people speak Spanish? Um, their native language is not Spanish. Their, their native language is Quebecer. Okay. Which is their, it's also the name of their tribe. It's their dialect. Many of them speak Spanish, but they speak Spanish as a second language. Okay. It's, um, it's not their first language and it's not their most comfortable way to communicate. Got it. So when Greg came back, you became, a, you know, acquainted with this new concept and the, the passion in his heart that had been ignited toward this people group. Yes. And you were thinking, oh, no, I see where this is going. This is not the plan. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking. And as as we're speaking, Miss Colleen, you are sitting in Costa Rica right now. Must I remind you? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so tell everybody how you got there. I love how God works. This is awesome. So that ushered in a period of, I think, you asked me earlier about our marriage through the grief process, but yeah. I think it was a period that we both had to begin to face how much this had really changed me. Mm -hmm. um, 
we've always been very adventurous, very non-conventional in picking up our family and moving somewhere. And we had traveled with children, you know, and we were on a plane to, to London on September 11th, 2001 with a three-year-old and a five-month-old. Um, we've got all kinds of crazy travel stories and everyone who, who knows us is not the least bit surprised when we come up with some sort of crazy plan for our next adventure. So it wasn't unusual for you when Greg came home to tell you about all of this. You knew this seriously could be going somewhere. Yes. And so that part wasn't unusual at all. What was unusual, even for me, was my response to it and how deeply frightening it was for me to consider the possibility that God might just want me to still do something for him, even after all this. And not even, it wasn't so much about what he wanted me to do ministry-wise, because that vision wasn't clear yet. Right. But that God might ask another yes of me after I had, obviously I didn't have any choice in the losses that we experienced, but I had a choice in the way I responded to them. And I felt like I had said, yes, yes, I will choose to trust you. Yes, I will choose to believe that you're still good. Mm-hmm. even in the midst of something that doesn't make sense to me. But I felt like that was enough. That was enough, yes. And so to be facing that he could be asking for yet another really big yes was hard for me. And I think it threw into light how much post-traumatic stress I was dealing with for just how frightening that was for me. And so that became a conversation between you and Greg because your response maybe was somewhat uncharacteristic from your previous responses to serving abroad. And so it maybe brought it to the surface to have it be a discussion. And the more you discussed it, did you more understand the feelings that were inside? Because sometimes we don't understand why our response is a certain way until we start to unpack it and really let ourselves feel way in there what it's all about. I think I, I did begin to understand it. And I think it was healthy for me to face the the level of um, emotional grief I was still feeling that this was um, grief is not only a spiritual process or only an emotional process or only a physical process. It's all of those things in one. And sometimes we can get so hyper-focused on being okay in one aspect of it. Like for me, it was really important for me to know I was okay spiritually. But yeah. in that moment of that psychological crisis enabled me to see that my faith was intact, but I was emotionally broken. Yeah. And understandably so. And that needed to be dealt with. So how did you deal with that? We went through a lot of hard conversations and a lot of fighting for unity. It was a dog fight. Yeah. A sweaty, bloody match, you know, to come to a place where we could, where Greg could understand my hesitancy, where Greg could understand the different response from what he expected in the way that I was responding to this, and where I could accept and, and forgive, quite honestly, that he wasn't as deeply changed as I was. That that adventurous part of him and that part of him that that wanted to look for something new and lead us to a new place and and could find joy in that was still intact. I had to really work not to resent that. Mm-hmm. Well, because you might be tempted to think, well, then he's not grieving like he should be. Because we often think the other people need to do it the exact same way we do. Otherwise, we invalidate their experience. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think it was for both of us, again, going back to the the idea of grief, that we were living a shared loss, but we were experiencing it as individuals. And a lot of factors play into your experience of grief, your temperament and the way that you're made and your own past history and your coping skills, the things you've developed over time as coping skills. And it sort of shines a magnifying glass on your individuality within your marriage and the way that you cope with those very hard things. And 
so for us, it was a, a battle through learning, really being thrown into light, these two different people who had been changed indelibly by the experience of loss we had been through. And to reaffirm and recommit to one another as these two new people. To say, you are not the person I knew. You're different. And I'm not sure what to do with that just yet. But we're going to do this. We're going we're gonna to stick in this. And for Greg to say, this is not how I expected you to react to me. But I'm still going to stand in headship and leadership of our family and I'm still completely convinced this is where we're going. Yeah. I'm sure, though, with a lot of grace. Yes, of course. Yeah. Of course. So it becomes a process of, you know, being marked by suffering, being marked by sorrowing, uh, changed by grief, and then wanting to be seen. Because part of that, I'm sure for you, you know, you had these guttural reactions and you wanted to be seen and understood, which was confusing. And and accepted and validated. And yet for someone who's having a hard time seeing why, you know, that there is an extension of grace on both sides that needs to happen and giving one another permission to grieve in our own unique ways that are suitable, not only to our gender, but our personalities and just everything like you described is so, so important. And I think that's why there's such a breakdown in marriage when there's a loss of a child or any other traumatic grief experience, because doing that is very hard work, wouldn't you say? It is hard work and it's exhausting on top of a, an exhaustion. Yeah. You know, grief is exhausting. I always would say I really feel like I need one brain to grieve with and one brain to live with because it just sort of creates this fog over everything you're trying to do mm-hmm. in day-to-day life. And I can remember vividly the day I remembered that I was supposed to cook breakfast. Really? Like, yeah. Like, oh, oh, now I remember what I used to do when I got up in the mornings. Wow. I made something for them to eat. And so obviously these conversations we're talking about, about the move to Costa Rica came later in the process, but it was still early enough in the process that it was very hard to extricate one conversation. In other words, a conversation about where we were going from my internal experience of grief. Everything was still very wrapped up in this fog of grief and loss and everything was being processed through that filter. Mm. And so it was hard for me to think of a future and a life outside of that or to try to even weigh the pros and cons and repercussions of that decision for our marriage and our kids and our future outside of how it was going to affect the way that I was grieving. Yeah. And so eventually... I ended up having to just say, I don't understand myself. I don't understand God. I don't understand my husband in this. And I'm just going to throw myself onto the wild waves of mercy and grace that I know are here for me and let myself be led. Well, that's all for part one of my conversation with Colleen, and next time she'll continue on with her story of surrender, her yes to God, and share so much more about all they're doing and their work in Costa Rica, and I just know you're going to love all she has to share. So I hope that you'll make a note to come back next week for episode 47, which will be part two of my conversation with Colleen. As usual, you can find all the links mentioned in this episode, including links to Colleen's blog on the show notes page over at JackieWatkins.com forward slash episode 46. Don't forget, you can download the app for this podcast, which is my free gift to you by going to your app store and searching Mud Stories. And also, you can get a free audiobook today by going to mudstoriesbook.com and signing up for a free trial, which you can cancel at any time at no cost to you. And you get to keep your audiobook for free, no matter what. So check that out at mudstoriesbook.com. 
So today, I want you to know how very much you mean to me and how thankful I am that you've taken time out of your day to spend here with me listening to these stories. And I want you to know, too, that if you have endured loss in your life or maybe you're living and wrestling through ongoing grief, I want you to know that I'm spending time this week specifically praying for you that you may know the peace of Christ, his great love for you, and that you will remember no matter what that you are not alone. I'm sending so much love to you today wherever you are and trusting that no matter what you're facing, no matter where you've been or what lies ahead, may you find a grateful song to sing. Have a beautiful day. Never in you, Mama, feels a press upon my mind. I pull a shame that leaves me a little bit blind. I cannot see beyond the blame, and I never will find a way out. And then I feel you next to me. You lift my head to see. Your strong arm reaches to me. Your mercy floods my tired soul as you lift me out of my muddy hole. You wash me up with your sweet grace and you lead me to a safer place again. I never in you, mother, feels a press upon my that leaves me a little bit blind I cannot see beyond the blame And I never will find a way out And then I feel you next to me You lift my head to see Your strong arm reaches to me Your mercy floods my tired soul song to sing, a grateful song to sing.